So we're in Matthew chapter 26, and we're looking at one section, which is 47 through 56. 47 through 56. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open. What I'm going to do uh, is just read the entire section, uh, 47 through 56, and then we'll, we'll go back and, and work our way through it. And there's some things I want you to see. But starting there at verse 47, um, just to kind of get us all in the same boat uh, as we look, it says, while he was still speaking, this is Jesus, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him, a great crowd with Judas, and swords and clubs and chief priests and the elders of the people. So he has this great crowd with him. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do not think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must (coughs) be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a against as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me day after day i sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples left and fled we can see here as we've kind of been looking at the passion narrative uh, of jesus over the last few weeks that this is really bringing us to the, to the point of no return this is this is the moment where uh, Jesus has been with his disciples, and by the time we end the the text, he's no longer with his disciples. He is the king alone. He is the alone king, and he is going to now go to the trials and the beatings and the cross completely by himself. So we've entered into (coughs) the point where uh, he is going to be completely by himself. But as we look at this, there's four things that I want us to see, four harmful occurrences in this particular text that happened to Jesus. Now, um, as I've said before, uh, the way we're going to look at this particular uh, chapters, 26 and 27 and 28, is this. Um, as we outline these texts and look through them, we're looking at them historically. We're not going to say, here's what you should know and here's what you should do. Instead, as we outline these texts and we go through them, we're looking at it. Here's the things that happen. And as we look at kind of the historical outline, as we do that, there will be some, some I think, natural applications that we can make. But before we do, I want to remind us all <coughs> in chapter 26, verse 1 and 2, wh- what's going on. We just finished in chapters 24 and 25, I say this a lot, what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus kind of teaches on the end things. And um, in the narrative, in the actual uh, verses there in chapter 26, verse 1, Matthew, in the narrative, wants to take a, a kind of a narrative turn, a, a, a writing kind of... Uh, I don't know what marking point for us to be able to see and says in one and Jesus had finished all these sayings he said to his disciples so he just got through talking about that and in verse tw- one and two here comes the big turn of all the things that he's been talking about we're, we're z- zeroing down in these particular moments and these next things become very very important it says in verse two you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified in the book of Matthew this is the fourth time that he prophesies about his death and Right here in this particular time, in 26 verse 2, he's wanting all of us to zero in on that and say, okay, here's the point of the next couple chapters. The narrative, the passion narrative, the, the death 
of Jesus. The burial and the resurrection is about to happen, and it's going to happen over these next two days. And the rest of what we're going to see is just the unfolding of the passion narrative. So in verse 46, last week, 36 through 46, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's in this particular moment sweating drops of blood, and three particular times he kind of comes out and sees the disciples and goes back in where he's struggling. He's saying, Lord, this is going to be difficult. I'm scared. I don't know that I want to do it. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then right there at the end of verse 39, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we know he does that three particular times, and he, and he ends every one of those struggles with that certainty. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he resolves that he's going to be absolutely, and this is at the height of his humanness, and he resolved, absolutely, I'm going to be obedient to the will of the Father. Without question, he's going to do it. And so he comes out resolved in his mind. He's dealt with it all. Um, we saw some of the most uh, intricate humanity sides of Jesus that we never ever get to see and then in verse 46 he comes out it's definitely going to happen his disciples are still sleeping bless their hearts Uh, and he tells them get up all right don't sleep anymore rise and get up it's time to go see the betrayers coming now he's already said someone's going to betray him and they're all wanting to know is it him and now he said the betrayers coming and so we can see we can look out here come the torches they don't have flashlights or their iPhone little lights going through there, but they have torches. They're trying to get through there. And so he's saying, the betrayer's coming. And so in that moment, all the disciples get up and Jesus is saying that here come the torches. Here come the whispers and voices through the trees. They're all coming now. And he says, the betrayer's coming. And so in this moment, we have to put ourselves in there. But in this moment, this is where all the disciples make the connection. The betrayer's coming and they knew that it was supposed to be one of them. And they look and then all of a sudden, here comes Judas. And then it's Judas been Judas the whole time and so we see this in verse 47 and while he was still speaking Judas came and then he throws in that little narrative uh that the little writers kind of thing one of the 12 just to heighten for us the the betrayal that Jesus has felt one of the 12 one of the closest ones came and he came with a great crowd and what's going on with this great crowd who are they and what do they have they have swords and clubs and they're the chief priests and they're the elders. We also see in, a, in one of the parallel texts that's telling us in John chapter 18. It's just as John tells his story. That there's also the temple police officers, a band of Roman soldiers, and the chief priests and elders. And they have um, torches. They have clubs. They have swords. And so Jesus is standing there with his 12 disciples. Judas is coming and a great crowd. And this great crowd isn't just kind of, you know, the nosy people that are like, hey, there goes a bunch of people walking over there. I wonder what's going. Let's just follow them and see what's going on. You know, like the rubbernecks that are wrecked that have to slow down to zero just to see what's in stand there instead of go. Like, go! Quit being nosy! It's not nosy people that are just kind of wanting to see what's going on. G- Judas has brought all these important people. I mean, to think about this, he's brought um, chief priests, elders, Roman soldiers, temple police officers. It's so many people that Matthew and and the rest of the Sem say, it's a huge, great crowd of people. All of them there, not nosy, but all of them are there for the one purpose, to arrest Jesus. So a huge crowd comes out to meet Jesus, to arrest him. The irony of all ironies is, this is a man that never performed one violent act. Why do you need all this? Who has he hurt ever? And we're going to see the one person that one of his people hurt, he actually heals him right there. It's like, why do you think you need this big, massive overkill to arrest a guy that's never hurt anybody? But they're, they're hard-hearted. 
great crowds of people come, great crowds of people come to arrest him. And it says in verse 48, now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. That seize is the, the idea of arresting. And so uh, while Jesus was very popular, all the things that they knew that he had done, not everybody knew his face, especially this crowd. This crowd that's coming, the soldiers, the chief priests, they probably weren't present at all the healings. And when Jesus is multiplying the food, if they were, they would probably be a follower of Jesus, not opposed to Jesus because they got to see all the miracles. That may be debatable, but they didn't know what he looked like. They see 12 men, the 11 disciples and Jesus. Which one is he? I'm not sure. And so Judas says, okay, the one I go kiss, that's the one that's Jesus. Just because I know that y'all don't actually know who he is, and I do. So here we're going to see <coughs> the first harmful occurrence towards Christ. I'm going to see, you're going to see four in this text, four harmful occurrences towards Christ. The first one is, you can go ahead and put it up, is the final betrayal of Judas. The final betrayal of Judas. We've, and I say final because we've, we've seen different things. We've seen him um, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus say, go and do what you're going to do. And then there's the devil enters his body, as it says in John, and he goes. We see that he goes over to the, the chief priests and elders and takes the 30 pieces of silver for it, continuing in the betrayal. But the final betrayal is when he comes up to the Son of God and literally kisses him on the face to signal everyone that this is the man that you want. And the one that I kiss is the one that you're supposed to cease. The one that you're supposed to seize, I should say. Um, And he kisses him. He betrayed him with a kiss. One of, in this particular time, in ancient Jewish history, was uh, an act that's supposed to, to show friendship. He uses it instead to have an ultimate act of betrayal. He looks at him, actually, in Luke 22, as he kisses him. Jesus looks at him, and he says, uh, well, let's go through it. Let's look at it. It says, in verse 49, he came to Jesus and at once and, and said, greetings, rabbi, still with the word rabbi. We talked about this last couple of weeks. As Jesus tells them, one of you is going to betray me. All the 11 say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Lord, Lord, Lord. All the 11 say, is it me, Lord, the sovereign ruler, reigner, the one that is going to have control of, of my life. But Judas, interestingly, instead of saying, is it I, Lord, says, is it I, rabbi, teacher, someone I respect. You probably know a lot. I've got to see a whole lot of things, but you're not the ruler and reigner of my life. He comes up and he says, greetings, rabbi, still not the ruler and reigner of, of his life. Greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And then Jesus said to him, friend, what you came to, uh, do what you came to do. Now in this, in the parallel text, Luke also says that he says something else. First of all, he calls him friend. Now there's kind of two words for friend. Um, there's the intimate close friend, and then there's just kind of the the neutral greeting of friend. And that's what he calls him. The, the, the neutral greeting of friend, not the intimate close friend. It's not negative per se. It's just not positive. It's just in the middle. Um, and so he's not make, don't make a ton out of that. He just says friend and then he tells him, do what you came to do. This is a command. This is in the imperative. Um, do what you came to do, Jesus, uh, Judas. Uh, y- you want to do this? It's going to happen. Go ahead and do it. And in the parallel text in, chap- in Luke 22, he looks at him. And as he does it, he looks at him. He says, Judas, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss. With a kiss. 
something so intimate. You look at me, you've seen everything that I've done, raising the dead. You've heard all the promises that have been fulfilled. You've seen all the miracles that I've done of the kingdom. You've seen demons flee from me, and you come and you betray me with a kiss, Judas. You've been here with me the whole time, and you betray me with a kiss. This is an ultimate act of treason, heartless, heartless hard heart. And they came up to Jesus, and, they, and it says in ver- the end of verse 50, then they came up to him, laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. So here we have the first harmful occur- occurrence towards Christ, which is the final betrayal of Judas. But before we get too far, and them actually getting to arrest him, which is coming, so the betrayal of Judas, there's this kind of interlude of story where um, Peter, old Peter, old faithful Peter, give us something to happen. It says this in verse 51, And behold, One of those, we know that the one of those is told to us in John chapter 18, verse 10, that it's actually Peter. Peter steps out, who is with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew a sword, and struck the servant. We know that the guy's name is here in in Matthew, it's called the servant. And John uh, 18.10 tells us that his name is Malchus. I don't know why we need to know that, but John parenthetically tells us his name's Malchus. So Peter got Malchus, and it says, uh, of the high priest, and cut off his ear. One of the commentators said that as he swung, he was literally trying to chop off his head, but he's just a bad baseball player, and he just hit his ear, and just the ear fell off, or maybe he dodged it, who knows what. But in this moment, they're coming, Judas gives the final betrayal, the arresting's about to happen, and big Peter stands up and says, oh no, he pulls out his sword, and swings toward, for the fences, and, and strikes Malchus right there in the ear, and his ear falls off. Now, What's probably going on in Peter's head here is, uh, if you remember, uh, maybe two weeks ago, yes, yeah, two weeks ago in verse 31, Jesus looks at all the disciples in verse 31 after Judas had left, and he looks at him and he says, I know Judas has left, uh, but you know what? In verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. You're all going to fall away. And so Peter it's, it's fun for us to pick on Peter. He's got a big mouth, so we're going to do it. So verse 33, sometimes I defend him, sometimes you're just too much for me, Peter. Verse 33, we see here, it says, Though everyone here is going to fall away, Jesus, because of you, I'll never fall away. So we got that in verse 33, and, Peter, and Jesus says, Actually, Peter, um, by the end of the night, you're going to deny me three times right before the rooster crows. And then Peter and verse 35 says, no way, Jesus. I mean, you're God, but I'm Peter, and I've got to know more than you do. And so I'm going to vehemently stand up for this again right here in verse 35 and say, even if I got to die, Jesus, I will not deny you. Yeah, you're God. Okay, you can say those things, and I see that everything you've ever said has come true, but here, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. And I'm just thinking like, didn't in chapter 16, Peter, you just get called Satan? You just get behind me, Satan. You were called the devil. And here you're standing up to Jesus and saying, oh, no, no, no. I'm standing up. It's not going to happen. It even says all the disciples said the same thing. So what I think's going on here in verse 51 is Peter's like, this is my chance. He said, I'm going to deny him. I don't want to deny him. So I'm going to vehemently take my position, get out my sword, and I'm going to kill this guy just to show Jesus in verse 33 and verse 35 when I said, not me, I'm telling the truth. But here's the problem. Um, This whole arrest is God's plan. It's God's plan. Like he wants to be, Jesus wants to be arrested because it's God's plan that he would go to the cross. And so this is actually harmful of Peter to do this. The defending of Peter for Jesus is a mistake. Jesus is supposed to go die. 
not be freed by Peter. So Peter is actually working against God by trying to feed Jesus. And that's why this is actually a harmful occurrence. It's actually a harmful occurrence. And so Jesus um, has to rebuke Peter's face off. Um, So he does. He just gets all up in his grill, um, embarrasses him in front of all of his friends. uh, And he looks at him as he drew the sword. And he tells him, uh, this is a rebuke here. Peter said, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. D.A. Carson's looking at this and he's talking about Peter's just, you know, his vehement standing up for Jesus. And he says, and I think this is just so descriptive of our lives, right? For the Christian life of how we kind of go through life. This is what he says. Peter is magnificent and pathetic, Magnificent because he rushes in to defend Jesus with characteristic courage and impetuousness. I didn't know what that meant either. It means rashness or being done on impulse. So he runs in there with characteristic courage, but he's kind of impulsive. But he's also pathetic because his courage evaporates when Jesus undoes Peter's damage, forbids violence, and he faces the passion um, without any kind of resisting. He's like, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. This is all pathetic, what you're, what you're doing. This is actually supposed to happen. And it's just us, right? We're, we're magnificent sometimes because we're filled with the Spirit and we live for God's glory. But a lot of times, if we're honest, we all experience this Romans 7 thing where the things I'm not supposed to do, I do. The things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And we find ourselves pathetic. That's the good news of the gospel, though. Because right after we finish Romans 8, there's Romans 8, 7, there's 8, 1. No condemnation. Even though we live in the magnificent and the pathetic in our everyday lives, the good news of the gospel is there's not, you're not condemned because of that. Praise God. As believers, there's no condemnation, even though we live sometimes pathetic lives and magnificent lives. God's not just impressed with our magnificence either. He's impressed with Jesus. And he's not casting you into condemnation because you're pathetic because of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that we, no matter what we do, we're never going to be good enough. And even though we've done so much bad, we're never going to be bad because the gospel says we're in Christ. And in Christ alone is our only hope. And then, continuing on, um, Boyce says that we're all really classic Peters here. We act this way. We think our tests are usually physical like Peters. Will we be courageous to act in some kind of bold way when actually um, our tests are really coming in the more quiet moments of day to day when we need to choose in our minds, are we going to speak up for Jesus or keep our mouths closed and denying him like Peter will eventually do in front of the little girl? Can't stand up for Jesus in front of the little girl. And so we're all kind of classic Peters at the time where we think that God's looking for big, courageous acts when really it's the day-to-day grind, the day-to-day monotonous where we're supposed to be making holy decisions that are born out of an act of worship because of what God's already done and declared over us. So here, um, this is where it gets pretty amazing. So Peter rash, uh, impetuous Peter, new word for the day, impetuous Peter comes and strikes off the ear, takes a big whiff, knocks off Malchus's ear to the ground, which had to have been nasty, but still kind of cool. And and he says to him, put your sword back. It's not going to happen this way. Um, This isn't how it's supposed to happen. And then if in the parallel text uh, in Luke chapter 22, Matthew doesn't record this, but Luke does. It says that, and Jesus then touches his ear and healed him. And I think that we all need to ha- kind of have this big seriously moment. And here's why. 
great crowds of people likely have not experienced the miracles and the workings of God. They're all out there. The soldiers and the police officers and the chief priests and all of them. And they, they bring all this violent sword and torches and all this kind of stuff for no purpose whatsoever. He's never been violent. Jesus has never been violent once. Um, and then one of, their, one of the disciples cuts off the ear. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. All of these people that want to get Jesus see the Son of God do a physical healing right there. And after they see it, they're like, okay, Malchus, get up. It's time to arrest him. <laughs> it's like, wait a second. What? You just saw a healing. None of you are like, wait a second here. Um, this is the wrong deal. Maybe we should all have a huddle, have a different discussion. He just healed the guy. Like, this doesn't happen. There's nothing, nothing in the text that says any of this kind of conversation happens. It's just amazing that this happens. He's the Messiah. He just healed him. And everybody's like, all right, get up, Malchus. Let's arrest this guy now. And so I think for us, a good application is not to just kind of stand back and say, well, those guys are just pathetic. What's wrong with them? Seriously, you saw a healing. What's wrong with you? I can see it. Why can't you see it? Instead, the better application then is just to say, hardness of heart is present in these people's lives. Hardness of heart can see amazing miracles and yet not be moved. What miracles am I seeing with my hard heart and not being moved by? If you're in Christ, you've been spiritually healed. We know that this is greater for the forgiveness of sins to happen than for someone to be healed. And so where do we find our heart being hard? Not being moved by the fact that Jesus has spiritually healed us forever. Spiritually healed us forever. So let's not look at these particular people too harshly, but instead do the hard work of looking at our own hearts and saying, where are we hard-hearted and not being moved by miracles? Jesus looks at him in verse 52 and tells him to put his sword back into place. Jesus um, doesn't need to be defended with violence. Any kind of violence to try to make people follow Jesus, he tells us, is not going to be tolerated. Now, Jesus isn't making an argument, I don't think, here for pacifism. Um, this is just kind of a side note. Augustine, uh, third century kind of f- father, picks this up with this book called The City of God, where we have the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Um, so the kingdom of God is advanced, not by violence. The kingdom of man, where we live and we have governments, people can defend their particular governments and work and have arms of the government with violence if need be. It has to be socially just, etc., etc. But we're not talking about that. Let's throw that back. We're looking at this, the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is, when it comes to the kingdom of God, you do, you do not have to advance it, or as a matter of fact, you never should try to advance the kingdom of God with violence, 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, how do we advance the kingdom of God? It's not through aggression and violence. Instead, for the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, they're not violence, but they have divine power to to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, not people. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the way that we advance the cause of Christ is not through violent means, it's with truth. 
It's with truth. We defeat arguments. People say things that aren't true about Jesus, then we apologetically, with his word, with a, with a submissive, Christ-like, loving, not, yeah, this is what the truth is, but instead loving heart that cares for them, cares that they would be converted, not just shown that they're wrong. We s- submit truth to them through the word so that they can come to know Christ. That's how we advance the kingdom. John Piper says it this way. I just love it. We don't fulfill the great commission by taking lives. We fulfill the great commission by willingly laying down our lives. So Christians don't advance and don't demand their rights. Instead, if we're going to reach the rest of this world, especially the 1040 window, it's by willingly laying down our lives and preaching the gospel and confronting doctrinal error and heresy with truth but in a loving christ-like way and as he looks at peter he says put your sword away for all who take the sword will perish by the sword that's not how my kingdom advances and in the parallel text and uh in john 18 verse 11 he actually says something else right after that when he looks at peter he says shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me in other words i'm going to drink this cup cup meaning wrath of god destiny shedding of my blood that cup i'm going to i'm going to do i've already sweat drops of blood in gethsemane making sure and saying absolutely that i'm going to do it there's no question and he looks right at peter shall i not accept this this cup yes i'm going to i will drink the cup that's coming to me i will go forward and die for the forgiveness of sins for my people this is the gospel christ is telling him right there in this moment i'm going to go and die so that people can have life If they confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Jesus here says, if you're not in Christ, if you know that you're a sinner and you know that you need repentance, he's done the work for you that you trust Christ and say, Jesus in my place, you died the death I should have died. You lived the perfect life that I should have lived. I believe and trust in you and all of your righteousness given to me, all the punishment that I was supposed to have, you took from me. And now all I know is mercy. All I know is no condemnation. And we are then, as Colossians 1, transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into his glorious son's kingdom forever, never to be lost. We're forgiven forever and we're children of God forever. Oh, that's such good news. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm going to drink that cup. I'm going to go to the cross so that people can be forgiven for their sins. And just to highlight it even more, and I'm just going to say, out of this text, I love 53. 53 just kind of shoots up, and it's kind of the firework exploding in the sky for us. It's like, yeah! Look at 53. This is what he says. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He looks at Peter, and he's like, listen, Peter, thanks for the defending. You're a strong guy. You look like you've been working out. I mean, you did knock that guy's ear off in one fell swoop. But let me talk about power. I can look up to God and one little word, he can send 72,000 angels down here in just a minute. I have, in just a minute, I have unfettered power and I could crush everyone in this olive garden if I want to. Olive garden. I could crush everyone in this olive garden in the blink of an eye if I want to. I am in charge of every, that didn't happen first service, obviously. I, I can, I'm in charge of everything that's going on here right now in the blink of an eye. 72,000 angels could come down here and destroy every single person. I mean, that's just, 
amazing power that he says. When he looks at him, he's like, Peter, thanks for the power, buddy. But uh, I've got power. I've got this. Everything that's happening right now um, is happening because I am allowing it. And then he tells us why. Tells us that he has this amazing power. And then in verse 54 says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? We see that one of the most important things to Jesus is not his own self-preservation, but the fulfillment of scripture for the salvation of souls. Not self-preservation. So Peter, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is just wrong. And so now we turn and we're going to see the third harmful occurrence that comes to Christ where they are going to seize him. They are going to arrest him now. So the third one is the arresting of the chiefs, priests, and elders. And you can put police officers and whatever. You can put the whole crowd there if you want. Um, it says it right here in verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds. And so this said to the crowds. We don't know who the crowds are, but Luke twenty-two fifty-two tells us who he's talking about. He looks right, as it's, Luke says, the chief priests and the elders. So this, this next little phrase that he's going to say, he's looking right at the chief priests and elders, and he wants them to listen. He says, have you come out? This is kind of an amazing statement. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He's like, look, you brought all this junk and you brought all these people like I'm some kind of huge, violent man. Why are you coming at me like this? Am I a robber? Am I a huge, violent person that you got to come out with all this stuff? And you're going to come out here now, in the middle of the night? You've seen me teaching in the temple day after day after day. That's what he says. Look what he says. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, you didn't arrest me. All the time, day after day, here I am teaching in the temple, and none of you came in those particular places when it was broad daylight, and you came and got me then. So he's showing two particular things in there. First, as they come out with, coming at him like a robber, and they come in with swords and clubs, they're showing that they have no idea who Jesus is. No idea. They just have no clue. The second thing, when they come at night, instead of during the day when they had multiple opportunities to seize him, and we know that they were doing this because Barabbas is in jail. And the two criminals likely were Barabbas' friends. They're in jail. So they were already arresting people who were rebels against the government. And they're in jail. Probably arrested during the day. So it's not something that they're trying to hide. But they're wanting to hide Jesus's. And the second thing that is showing us is not only do they not understand him. But their proud, wicked hearts know that he's innocent. And they just want to arrest him anyway. He just healed Malchus's ear. And they're like, all right, Malchus, get up. Put the handcuffs on him. So we know that they have proud, wicked hearts who do not understand who Christ is. Their power is more important than being saved by God. Day after day, I sat here with you. If I was guilty as I was teaching, why didn't you arrest me then? That's basically what he's saying. If I was so guilty, it was in broad daylight. You could have just arrested me but they know that he wasn't guilty and they did it anyway. And then he looks right at him and he's saying, all those things, guess what? You thought you had control. Again, he's gonna drive it home. The reason why you didn't arrest me when I was teaching in the temple courts, by the way, is right here, verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You think you're in charge, you're not in charge. I'm in charge. And then he says it in verse uh, 56b. Matthew puts in this last little thing. This is the fourth 
harmful occurrence that happens towards Christ, the abandonment of his disciples. It says it right there in verse 56b. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left. And in this moment, in John 18, 12, it tells us as it finishes that this is the moment where they bound Jesus. So up until this time, he's always with his disciples. Never do they have him. So humanly speaking, we've reached the point where this is of no return. As we finish this particular text, it, they put the, the handcuffs on him, if you will, and he is bound. Humanly speaking, he's caught, he's busted, he's done. It's all going to happen now. It's all going to start happening. This, and then verse 56b says, then all the disciples left him. He's in the cuffs, Everybody's gone. This is the beginning of the end right here. We've reached it. They all leave. This is the abandonment of the disciples. And, and even more kind of bizarre, maybe you've seen this, but I want to highlight it for us just so that we can kind of understand uh, the abandonment even more. Um, in a parallel text, Matthew 14, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 14 is a parallel text to this. If you have, if you want to, you can flip, you know, maybe 20 pages to the right. In Matthew 14, starting at verse 48, you can see how similar Mark's recording of this is, is Matthew, starting at uh, Mark 14, 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber as with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching and did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And it says, And they all left him and fled. Stop right there. So you can see it's almost the exact same thing. And then we have this bizarro like couple verses right after this, right? You ever read this? Did you know this was in the Bible? Watch this. And then a young man followed him, anonymous, uh, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. So he literally just kind of wrapped up in a blanket and they seized him, the anonymous man, but he left the linen cloth, so they grabbed it and so, and he ran away naked. You're like, what? Who put the, did Monty Python write verse 51 and 52? (laughs) Who put that in the Bible, right? Um, It's just so bizarre. Well, here's what's going on. This is what I think is going on. Um, This is Mark, John Mark, that joins in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas and all of them doing their work of of mission. And Mark, we know, got his gospel. He, He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, but he wrote this whole book because he got his information from Peter. So as he wrote, Peter gave him everything that happened and he wrote down. And Mark, in this particular place, inserts himself into the narrative. Not falsely, but really, Mark was actually there. Young, young man. That's why he calls himself a young man. He's anonymous. Um, I think we can guess why. Uh, I don't have any idea why Mark is sleeping naked with just a blanket. Put some clothes on, buddy. You never know what's going to happen. But in verse 51, it says, the young man, this is Mark, I think, following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seize him. He's like, okay. Oh, man. And then just runs out of here, right? And you're just thinking, why, Mark, are you telling us this? Why are you telling us? Um, he inserts himself into the narrative, anonymously keeps himself uh, in there f- to save himself from embarrassment for obvious reasons. And then, um, and this, I think this is why he put this here. Because you've got the 12 disciples all leave Jesus. Judas, of course, um, and then the other 11. It says they all leave him. And then Mark, as he's writing, just as, a, I think, a point of confession and maybe for us all, because he's on the fringe and he follows Jesus later. As a point of confession, and perhaps this is just a, a cathartic confession that he writes down for us to look in that and say, um, I did go uh, work for Jesus later, but even in that moment, even I abandoned him. The 12 disciples, but even I abandoned him. And I think it's just for us to say, the 12 disciples abandoned, and even us, we would have. 
We may later, and hopefully you are living this out in your life, doing great things for Christ. But what's trying to be amplified for here in this moment is even the people that work for Jesus in the book of Acts and spreading the gospel. What we need to see here is, is verse 50 in Mark and verse 56b in Matthew. What he's wanting us to see is everybody leaves him. He is going to have to do this completely alone. Everybody's gone. Even John Mark. Everybody. Now, Here's the thing. Um, I titled this sermon, The Four Harmful Occurrences Towards Christ, uh, because uh, we can see in the text, these are four bad things that kind of happen for Jesus. Now, what I'm going to do is conclude, and we're going to change all four. I did it on purpose. It's not like accidental, because the way to wrongly preach this and just kind of leave it out there, is to paint Jesus as the victim, which I don't want to do. I've tried to hint towards it. Jesus isn't the victim. He's not the victim. These harmful occurrences from our mind, we look at it like, oh, look at another thing. Oh, oh my goodness, oh. But instead, that's actually the wrong way to look at it. Um, He's not the victim here. He's the one in charge of everything. And so instead of, and if you want to scratch out the other four, you can, but I would suggest maybe writing beside it. Instead of saying the four harmful occurrences towards Jesus, this is, it's the four sovereign occurrences that Jesus allows to happen. Jesus allows these things. That's why he says in 54 and 56, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? But all this is taking place that the scriptures and prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus is making these things happen. So let's look at all four of those at, by way of um, concluding. The first one is, instead should be looked at as Christ allows the betrayal to happen. He isn't betrayed by Jesus as the victim. Instead, as John 18, 4, right before everything happens, John 18, 4 says that whenever they walked up to him in the garden with the torches, Jesus, uh, in verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen um, to him, came forward and looked at him and said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he looked right at him and he says, I'm he. And Judas, who betrayed him, standing there with Judas, said, I am he. And they drew back, and they fell again. And Jesus said again in verse 7, who do you seek? So all of this is happening, and he's doubly saying, it's me. And I know what it's about to happen. It's me. So he's not some passive victim who's being betrayed, though he is, humanly speaking. But on the other side, as we look at it, in the grand scheme of things, in the sovereignty of God, Christ knows it's going to happen and allows the betrayal. Wake up, disciples. I want this to happen. It's happening right now. I know what's about to happen. I'm him. I'm him. And so we need to realize that Jesus is the sovereign one that's allowing all this to happen. And then the next thing we see, instead of saying Peter wrongfully defends him, we say Christ stops Peter's defense because Jesus doesn't need anyone to defend him. I think that's the whole point of verse 53. In verse 53, whenever he says, uh, do you... Do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? 12 legions of angels. If I was in that moment, whenever I'm kind of standing in the background, just picture myself as one of the, you know, not Judas, not Peter, but one of the other 10. And all this has happened and Peter chops down his ear and everything's kind of going on. And Peter's kind of getting rebuked by Jesus. And all of a sudden he looks up and he wants everybody to know who has the power. He says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send 72,000 people? I would have been in the back going, that's right. That's right. Oh, it's about to go down. Bring them on, Jesus. Like I'd have been in the back kind of going crazy. It's happening now. But here's the thing. That's going to happen. His power is going to be flexed in the second coming. 
But the first coming, we're not jumping around and dancing. We will one day when his power is flexed and everybody sees it. But in this particular time, when he's yelling, or not yelling, but telling Jesus or Peter that I've got this power, it's not happening right now. The first coming is one of humble servanthood, submission, death. The second coming is this, where he comes and it says, as we saw in Matthew 25, when he comes, the entire world knows that he's coming down. Like if something fell down from the sky in Rock Hill, we would know in Rock Hill, but you know, California wouldn't have any idea that happened. And it certainly wouldn't know over in Australia. But in Matthew 24 and 25, it suggests that when Jesus comes down from the sky, the whole world knows that Jesus came down from the sky. That's crazy power. That's unbelievable power. And so what he's wanting us to realize is he doesn't need Peter's defense. He doesn't need anybody's defense. Now, I'm, I like apologetics. I think it's a good endeavor. And we, we use apologetics to, to go after arguments. But Jesus doesn't need us to defend him in that if somebody's down-talking Jesus, like, oh, you're talking about Jesus, I'm going to have to step up. You know, it's not like that, right? He doesn't need for us to do that. We don't have to defend him. He's the one that's sovereignly in control. The next one is the arrestment, the arresting. Um, Christ willingly allows himself to be arrested. As a matter of fact, don't you remember uh, 26, 1 through 5? In verse 2, Jesus looks at him and says, After two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. So he's looking at his disciples and he says, In two days I'm going to be arrested. And then right after that, no accident, Matthew wants us to look at verses 3 through 5, where all the people that are plotting, they're saying the chief priests and the elders are saying, well, in verse 5, not during the feast, but after the feast, so there's not an uproar. So basically, 3 through 5, they say, in eight days, we're going to arrest Jesus. Jesus just said in verse 2, in two days, I'm going to be arrested. And Matthew puts it right there where they say, eight days. And then what happens? Two days, Jesus is arrested, just to show that they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus is in charge when he gets arrested. Christ willingly allows himself to be arrested in this moment. He's calling the shots. He's not the victim. He's the one in charge. And even more so, I think this is even astounding. In this arresting and the coming beating and the coming cross and the coming wrath, all of that, Hebrews 12, 2 says, he looks at all this stuff that's coming and he says, and I count it as joy. I'm looking at the cross as joy to be able to do all this. He's looking at the saving of souls as joy. Which means when you look at the saving of your soul, Christ looked at doing it as joy. Do we also look at the saving our soul as joy for us? He said, I say it's joy to be arrested and do all this. And then lastly, the way that we can look at the last one is Christ willingly allows the prophecies and the abandonment. He allows the abandonment. Don't forget when we see here in verse 56b, it says, then all the disciples left and fled. Jesus just got through telling them in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. Zechariah 13, 7. I'm going to strike the sheep, the shepherd, Jesus, and all the sheep are going to scatter. The reason why they're abandoning him is because Jesus says it's going to happen. I know this is a double negative. It's going to sound crazy, but I'm saying it on, pur on purpose. They couldn't not abandon him. He said it was going to happen. Jesus isn't the victim. He's the one in charge. So 
as we go into a time of response then, if you're a believer, if you go into a time of response, how am I supposed to think here, Fun? Because when I hear this, it makes me sad. When I read this, I'm just like, gosh, what a horrible kind of end of his life. I feel sad. But I think the way that we're supposed to think about it is as worshipers. God is in Christ is allowing all these things to happen. We're supposed to celebrate his power. Verse 53 is not there on accident. It's lifting up for us to say, this is the God that you worship. This God that has power that any moment could, could, could call down 12 legions of angels. That's a legion 6,000, 12 times 6,000, 72,000. I already knew that. I'm not good at math. And so it just like automatically 72,000 angels in a moment's notice could be down here. That is the kind of God we worship. I need to know how to respond right now, Fudd. I want to, I want, I've heard of this great power. I feel bad because of what happened. And I'm saying, stand to give him the glory because he's do it. Because he could have, in this moment, called him down and just taken care of things. Right? But here's the even better thing. He could have self-preserved. But he didn't. He did the even greater act of power. He didn't do it. And went to the cross and then rose again from the dead to prove that he defeated Satan, sin, and death. (laughs) That's a greater act of power than calling down 72,000 angels. That's the king we worship. So as we worship now together, maybe you need to sit and think and pray about the hard hardens of these particular people and examine your heart and say, am I proud? Am I hard-hearted? Do I not worship when I should? But more so, I think, let's just stand and give him all the glory and all the worship that he's due because of his great act of power and obedience to going to the cross. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather around your word and again, see just how great and glorious you are. That you're not a victim, but you're the king of glory the one who went to the cross for us willingly, that you are all-powerful. I pray, God, that you would be with us now as we worship and that our affections would drive deep because of your obedience for you and that we would love, honor, and worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.